Hey everyone, welcome to AWS FM, the live audio show with guests from around the AWS community. I'm your host, Adam Elmore, and today I'm joined by Boris Tain. Hi, Boris. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's a rainy day in London today, so I mean, typical. <laughs> That's normal in London. It's actually really nice in the Midwestern United States today. We had kind of some heat the last couple of days uh, that is delaying fall just a little bit longer. So, Boris, I followed you for a while on Twitter. Uh, you're someone that sort of bridges two worlds for me. So, uh, I follow a lot of the kind of indie, like SaaS building maker types. Uh, that's kind of its whole community on Twitter. And then I also follow, obviously, a lot of AWS folks. You're sort of in the intersection of that Venn diagram. You're kind of living, uh, bridging that gap for me. And I'd like to just start kind of with your, your story. If you could just tell me kind of a bit about your background, getting into uh, building things, getting into AWS, uh, just kind of start there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I actually uh, am an aerospace engineer. So I studied physics and aerospace engineering, and I started my career in aerospace. I um, spent a few years as a, an aerodynamics consultant. Um, but I've been writing code like since I'm a kid because I wanted to make video games. Uh, back in the Crash Bandicoot times, I wanted to make video games exactly nice. what I wanted. Um, and yeah, after a few years in Aero, I then I'd been building internal tools. I actually started in Azure, interestingly, uh, and then I joined a startup which was 100% uh, on AWS. Um, and that's when I started digging deep into the AWS ecosystem. Um, typical architecture when I started, you know, containers on EC2 and then ECS. Yep. And one day I saw this article about you can do everything without having to spin up a single server. I was like, <laughs> what, what world is this? <laughs> uh, and yeah, that's how I then started uh, playing around with uh, serverless Lambda. Uh, that was when 2018 sometime there, I started playing around with uh, Lambdas and slowly, you know, getting more into the ecosystem. And then, oh, there is this thing called SQS. You don't need to have your own broker. Interesting. Oh, there's yeah. this thing called SNS. Oh, and then S3, nice, nice. Then slowly, <laughs> slowly over the past three to four years, I've just been, you know, like in the ecosystem. And yeah, I joined the indie hacker movement. I've, I've been building like little apps on the side. But during the pandemic, that's when like at the very beginning, that's when I discovered the indie hacker community. Um, I joined and it was fantastic. Like it's one of the most welcoming communities on the, on the web. Um, and yeah, that's when I started being a little bit more serious about the apps that I was building. And yeah, I think it's one thing among the indie hacker community that if you want to do something when you're a small team or alone, go for a SaaS, don't go for a social network. Um, that's when I started digging more yeah. into the SaaS world. And yeah, I've been I've been building a couple of SaaS uh, since then, and now I'm building a someone some something which is a little bigger than what i've been building before yeah and i want to talk about that so baseline you just announced uh, you're working on baseline which is targeted at folks building things on aws it sort of solves the observability problem could you talk a bit just about baseline kind of what you're building and, and maybe more broadly about observability and serverless yes uh so doing serverless for 
this number of years now on AWS, it's it's a problem that you actually don't know what's going on uh, in your systems. When you're doing microservices architecture, normal, typical quotation marks, microservices architectures uh, with, uh, you know, with Docker and such, you still have that problem. But when you move to serverless, it goes from a 10x problem to a 100x problem. Like it just explodes sure. because you now have these many moving parts into your architecture. Um, and I had faced it in my, you know, in my day-to-day work within companies. But within companies, we always had something. We always had a data doc, which was kind of helping. We always had the X-ray setup, which was kind of helping. We could always dig into the CloudWatch logs, which were kind of helping. Um, but building my last project, I mean, I'm still running it, Bookmark, the, the Bookmarks Manager thing. I had two weeks when people couldn't sign up on my app and I didn't know. Like I simply huh. didn't know. It took someone to message me saying, hey, I can't sign up on your app. And then I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then after, I don't know, one, one hour or so of looking at where the problem was coming from, it was one change in one lambda which impacted another one but it wasn't throwing an error so nothing was shouting at me hey there is an error going on here um and that's when i thought someone should do something about this (laughs) (laughs) and that someone should be you (laughs) i started you know looking at solutions that are out there um there are a few solutions for monitoring uh, of uh, serverless architectures. You have the Lumigos, the Dashboard, all of those players. Um, and also very recently, I think you uh, interviewed them. Uh, what's the name of the app? CloudDash. CloudDash, yeah. exactly. Uh, that's a desktop yeah. application that is basically helping you with uh, your, your CloudWatch logs, basically. And there are also players doing one step ahead of that, uh, somebody like Honeycomb IO, for example, or Lightstep, they are literally going to the, okay, we want you to actually be able to dig into the data into your systems. They're not doing it for serverless specifically, they're doing it for general architectures. But the serverless world is a little different from the Docker world, the container world, where like timeouts are a big problem. You don't necessarily have such a big problem with timeouts when you're doing when you're dealing with uh, a typical container architecture. Sure. And after looking at all these players in the market, I thought, okay, there is a place where you're actually doing that observability, that real observability um, for serverless. And it's quite hard for any team to adopt it right now. That's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I told the CloudAsh founders, I mean, I think anybody working right now on this problem, just trying to improve sort of a developer's life on a server app, serverless application, I think is time well spent because uh, there is still a lot to be done in this space to kind of improve on the developer experience. So it's really exciting to me every time I see anybody kind of starting to to tackle sort of dev tools, uh, you know, th- that space. And I know venture capitalists are super excited about that space right now. So uh, that's good if you go that route. Yeah. So I guess you've now built 
you've kind of got a track record of building SaaS applications on AWS. Could you speak a little bit just in terms of advantages that you see uh, building on AWS versus, you know, a lot of the indie hacker crowd is sort of using much higher level uh, services, uh, you know, they're hosting on uh, Render or Superbase or whatever. How do you view kind of building SaaS applications on AWS and sort of strengths, weaknesses, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, if you are doing indie hacking, which means you are probably alone trying to get to a few thousands MRR, I'm running my app for free, right? It's literally yeah. free. I'm not hitting any of the threshold to then start paying. Whereas if I was on DigitalOcean or any of the higher level um, platform as a service uh, providers, I will be at least at $100 a month right now, right? So it's completely free. And also it's, it allows, at least for me, it allows me to build things that are much, much more resilient. I don't have to worry about is DynamoDB going to scale properly, right? Like that's right. almost a given. I don't have to worry about, okay, I have to worry a little bit about is my Lambda going to scale appropriately, but I don't have that many users. So technically speaking, I don't have to worry about that. Um, so yeah, definitely if you're, if you have the skill set, because I think there is also that question of should I do it when I don't know what I'm getting into? Serverless on AWS has a lot of gotchas. You have to read the documentation. Sure. You have to, you know, there are things that I discovered just reading tweets, right? Like it's not clear in the documentation that this is how things work. But when you read the documentation, you understand a tweet by someone who has done it before. You understand that if you want to get the API gateway logs in CloudWatch, you need to do this, 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 and that. Um, right. So if you want something out real quick that is going to provide you provide value to your customers and your users and you don't necessarily have that serverless experience yes it's probably better to do it on a different you know stack where you already know what you're doing but if you already have that knowledge or you are keen to learn right the beauty of the uh, AWS community and the serverless community in particular is that it's it's also welcoming. It's just as welcoming as the indie hacker community. Everybody yep. is ready to answer questions that you might have. Everybody is ready to help. And there is already a lot of content out there to help you, you know, build an application if you're trying to do it solo, right? So yep. definitely do it. I encourage everyone. Uh, and my personal bias is that serverless is going to be the future of software infrastructure. So... Yes, you can try to spin up a Kubernetes cluster, blah, 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 blah. But why do that when, you know, you can run a command and have a few functions running in like 10 seconds? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see the arguments, you know, a lot of folks in the indie hacker community seem to resonate with the thought that you should stick with what you know. Uh, don't sort of take on new technologies when you're also trying to build a, a new business. I think... I, I understand those arguments, but at the same time, I think there's so many technologies within AWS that are underutilized. And, the, and I think they are a, a great fit in that scenario where you're scaling from zero, you're sort of going from, I have no customers to, you know, I'm trying to build up a customer base, but all, of, all the while you're experimenting, you're not really incurring costs. You, you know, you have all these tools at your disposal um, and, and like services like DynamoDB. I mean, I think that like, 
I really wish the whole broader kind of indie hacker web dev community could understand some of the strengths uh, and, and trade-offs with DynamoDB. I think because it's kind of within AWS land and they don't necessarily have experience with AWS, they don't really get that exposure. And to understand what it's capable of, I think it's sort of a cornerstone of that serverless uh, advantage. Yeah, definitely. And it gives you the, at least me, it give, give, gives me the possibility to try things out and shift without, you know, having to rewrite a lot of things, right? Like if you are changing the access patterns to one thing, okay, everybody says you need to design your access patterns for your DynamoDB table beforehand. That's true. That's what you should be doing. But if you need to change it, but you have what, less than a thousand records in the database, it's not that much of a big right. deal. You can rewrite it, right? So, Whereas if you have a complete ORM on the MySQL database, now you have to run this migration, you can lose data. On DynamoDB, you don't have to worry about, you know, um, uh, backups, right? You, it's one line of cloud formation and, and it's done. Right. Uh, <laughs> whereas everywhere else, you need to write custom scripts to read the database every evening and then write it to S3 or whatever uh, cloud um, cold storage that you're using. I think, yes, like people should want to experiment. And, you know, like the software world is moving really fast. Of course, you can build a profitable application on a single PHP file. Um, but do you really want to be doing that? Probably not. <laughs> Yeah, so I have a few more questions I want to go down the kind of AWS SaaS route. But you said something earlier about the indie hacker community, and that's something I'd love to just pick your brain a bit. I I sort of only have the capacity, I guess, for like one community on the internet. <laughs> so I, I've sort of resonated with Twitter and with where people are building in public on Twitter, but I've never been able to, I think I'm signed up on indie hacker, you know, the the forums and everything. I've just never had sort of the ability to juggle those two communities. Is it something you've been able to do? Are you active sort of both places at the same time? I used to uh, for the past four, five months. I think I've been in the same position where you are, where there's just not enough bandwidth to be able to yeah. be on Twitter and then be on Reddit and then be on the Indie Hacker Forum right. and then answering questions on Stack Overflow. It's just too much, right? Like I think most recently I've focused focused quotation marks on on Twitter more. Like it's where I hang out. I already have a few friends on Twitter. I already interact with a lot yep. of people there on a daily basis. So I just stick to Twitter now. Yeah. Do you when you interact with folks in the more like indie hacker circles, people that are just makers, do you lobby for like are you ever trying to convince them? to kind of come over and test the waters with AWS if they don't have that exposure? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult battle because, as I said, there are a lot of very successful indie hackers who are running on PHP, on Rails, in a single big server. And yep. it's definitely valid, right? Like, if you want to build a yep. business fast and you already have the skills on Rails, probably you want to stick to that. But if you're curious sure. and you want to explore... Uh, definitely join join the serverless uh, train because the train has already left the station and it's going <laughs> to the moon. So definitely. Um, and I like it when, you know, a like a indie hacker 
DMs me saying, hey, I tried this Lambda thing. It's quite good. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I'm, I'm always happy yeah. to answer those questions. Yeah. So any, do you have any sort of tips or anything that you've run across when sort of interacting with these folks? Things that you would tell people who are just getting started in AWS maybe, but they have that background of building products. Anything you've learned in your experience that you would sort of distill and, and hand off? I think if you are coming from a traditional server world and you want to adopt serverless, start by um, having your cron jobs on a on the Lambda function. Uh, I think that's the easiest way to get in. Usually you don't have to move a lot of stuff. Um, and then that gives you straight away the power of having a Lambda, right? You don't have to go into mm -hmm. a computer and manually write the cron jobs. No, like it's literally a line. If you're using the serverless framework, it's one line, right? Uh, then yep. it happens every day or whatever uh, interval that you set up. And I think, at least for me, that was the hook. Because when I started, um, what I did was, was what most people do, which is taking an express server, having a wrapper around it, and put it into a Lambda. And yep. I was like, yeah, this is good, but it doesn't really do anything different, right? Okay, I can deploy relatively easily. I don't have to pay when I don't have any requests, but startup time is like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Not ideal with the on-demand model. Yeah, Exactly. But when I started putting cron jobs, uh, I think the first thing that I did, which was interesting for me, was... Um, a, a bot, a Twitter bot telling me um, if the London on the ground was on time or delayed or whatever for, for each. Mm. And that was a mm -hmm. cron job calling the API for Transport for London every hour and tweeting if there was a problem. And then doing that into a typical server architecture would have taken me at the time at least a full weekend. And that was like three hours and I was done. So that's when I realized, okay, this thing is, is powerful and I need to dig deeper into it. And here we are today, a few years later, I'm building a solution to help people adopting it. <laughs> yeah, because that is, I mean, that's one of the first things I think if someone's really trying to start a small, you know, bootstrapped business and they want to find issues in their serverless application before their customers, that's non-trivial. So I... I really think the baselines of the world, like they, they need to exist. And, and I, I wish you luck kind of pushing that forward because I know I've sort of built things, small things, um, you know, and I'm generally leaning towards serverless, uh, you know, just having that insight. And I've worked on teams where it's not serverless, even with traditional applications, you know, we're finding out from customers when there's issues. That's, that's sort of like par, I guess, when it comes to observability these days. Um, and it's, it's really not, not great. Like we want to find those issues before our customers do. Yep. Um, yeah. So I guess, have you heard, this is something I wanted to ask you about just knowing you're in the space and there aren't that many people, I feel like building SaaS on AWS, at least publicly. Are you familiar with the, well, there's the well-architected lens. Are you familiar with the SaaS? I'm sorry, the well-architected tool, but the SaaS lens they've recently in the last like year, I feel like 
they've launched this sort of whole learning platform on AWS around building SaaS. Is that something you're familiar with? You've had any exposure to that? Actually, no, I'm learning and that's great. There's always something new to learn on the AWS world. Um, on the well-architected, uh, I don't know, it is, it's, a, it's a service on AWS from memory. I think I, at one of the companies I worked at, we, we played around with it a little bit and it gave us just so many errors that we said, yeah. this is not. It's like noise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, this is not the right thing for us right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. And I think that's one of the problems of such tools where they tell us, I mean, obviously your architecture is going to be crap, right? If you're a real business <laughs> operating with yeah. real users, you're not going to have a perfect architecture. Like there are going to be areas which are literal garbage that you've been you know, <laughs> carrying around for a few years now. Um, yep. And when you click on a well-architected thing, which analyzes your entire stack and gives you this four pages report saying that you need to rewrite yeah. everything, the natural behavior is to just be like, not for today we're going to see this later and what is going to happen yeah. between now and that later is you're going to get worse so i think those tools show at least in my opinion should give piecemeal information that are actionable right now rather than this huge report which is not helping anyone um if you are adopting those tools early in your journey so when you start every week or every month you run it to make sure that you're not deviating from from industry standards yes you are going to be on track but if you do that after four years of operation uh, yeah it's not going yeah. to help you yeah man i'm so glad i asked you that's, that's such a better response than i anticipated i forgot that you're sort of, you're a practitioner like you're you're building things and it's like that's the real world answer i needed which is like sometimes it's easy to get kind of like absorbed in all the best practices or whatever everything AWS puts out there uh and and that was just a service that i i wondered who's using this in the real world because in my mind you know the SaaS lens i would think it's sort of for greenfield people building out stuff for the first time but i now that you kind of responded i i hear it like it just sounds like a bit much for that sort of bootstrapped mindset where like you're you're not so concerned about whether your architecture is checking the literal hundreds of boxes. You're you're concerned with are your customers happy? Are they buying your thing? Uh, yeah, refreshing to hear that. So yeah. I'm I'm glad I asked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you kind of said earlier, and I wanted to to hit on this. Like serverless really does it, it sort of opens up whole new types of applications you can build. I know that's a feeling I've had sort of having experience in AWS and dabbling in the maker kind of mentality, like building things, putting them out there quickly. Um, you know, it feels like you have tools at your disposal when you have these skills with serverless and with cloud technologies that you can kind of go out and think of applications that maybe other people would be really hard to build on those other platforms. So I don't know if I'm asking a question so much as just kind of reiterating what you're saying, which is um, some of the pro, there's trade-offs with everything. And I think with serverless, it's sort of like, if, if you take the time to, to learn these technologies, to learn the, the sort of foundation, it's not that many, you know, everyone talks about how many services on AWS, 200 plus services, but with serverless, you're talking about like a dozen that you really need to, to kind of interact with regularly. 
if you take the time to develop those skills, it sort of opens up all these possibilities that you could, as a sort of business person, someone sort of entrepreneurial trying to build things, you have this new set of tools and, and these new types of businesses you can build. Yeah, definitely. It makes things, at least in my opinion, way easier, right? Like little things like sending emails, right? Like that's one thing that every single application does. You don't want that to be synchronous. You don't want that to be every time someone clicks and sign up on your app, the email sending process is run before they get the response, right? You want that to happen later on. If you're building a monolithic application, I think that's going to be relatively hard because you have to build all these communication buses internally into your app. Whereas if you're in the serverless world, you just write the user into a DynamoDB table, have a stream that is going to send an event that goes into EventBridge. EventBridge sends it to another Lambda. The Lambda sends the email. It sounds complicated, yeah. but it's you actually don't write any code between those steps. It's, yeah. it's cloud formation. Like <laughs> You're just gluing the bits together. Exactly. And now your user gets the response in 100 milliseconds instead of two seconds if you were to call your email service manually. I mean, not manually, like in the process. And right. like now if you want to change your email service, it's a complete separate thing that is living in a different repo even, right? Yep. You don't have to worry that if I change this, is that going to impact anything else? It's self-enclosed within the Lambda. Okay, if you have more complex, you know, uh, um, if you have more complex flows and you put them into step functions, yes, if you change one, maybe it's going to change the rest. I mean, to have an impact on the right. But, you know, those are the, that's the knowledge that I think we need to have in order to build those applications way faster and at a lower cost, literally. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like serverless is, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this or think this. Um, It's like the no-code movement. It feels very parallel, like they're on parallel tracks. Like it's really about writing less stuff, less proprietary stuff that you have to maintain. Uh, you know, no code may have a different approach, but it, it feels very much, you know, like these two communities have something in common. I never thought of it that way, but now that you say it, am I a no code developer? <laughs> yeah, are you? <laughs> I mean, that's always the goal now. Like, I feel like building stuff out with serverless now, it used to be like, don't spin up an EC2 instance. And I heard from... Uh, the Cloud Ash founders, you know, they work at Steady and they sort of limit, they just shut off EC2, you know, with SCPs. So the whole account level, like they're not allowed to launch EC2 instances, which I think is awesome. But that used to be the goal. Now the goal sort of is, how can I build this whole thing without writing a single custom Lambda? Like, can I, can I do this all with just like bolting, you know, bolting together services that have direct integrations? And every time AWS launches some new like feature that integrates two services that you kind of knew eventually would be integrated. It's just that feeling of, oh, I get to go back through like three repos and just cut out all this (laughs) custom code. It's like, we're just constantly pulling back on what we have to maintain, which is very empowering, especially from like a bootstrap standpoint where you're really critical with the time that you spend on anything. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it's great to have folks like you in the community that are sort of bridging these two worlds because AWS people aren't necessarily into bootstrapping small businesses or, or sort of these indie hacked startups and indie hackers. Clearly we've talked about 
aren't necessarily interested in AWS or lower level things like that. Uh, but I think there's a harmony there that's, that's worth exploring. I'd like to get a hot take from you, Boris, like something, it can be AWS related. It could be just technology more broadly, something that's really like, it's good. Like it's juicy. Somebody's going to be very upset. <laughs> like when you say it, someone's going to get angry and they're going to like flame us on Twitter. Let me see who is in the audience before <laughs> I can see Vic. Okay. Well, hot take. This is something I've wanted to tweet for a few months now. And this I've been be restraining, restraining myself from it. Um, your unit tests are useless. <laughs> nice. If you're, if you're writing lambdas on AWS, the vast majority of the unit tests that you write are useless because they test this bit of code in isolation. And that bit of code never, ever exists in isolation. The whole point is that it exists within your infrastructure. So if you have a function, most of the time, the code that we write is not complex. We don't write like, I've been, I was a, an aerospace engineer before. The code I was writing then was relatively <laughs> more complex than what we do now. It's a couple of if statements, maybe a loop there. And then you have to await the promise to do something. And then, you so know, true. like, it's not rocket science. So most of the time, our unit tests are mocking S3, mocking SQS, mocking SNS. So at the end of the day, the bug is going to come from your Lambda not having the permission to write to SQS, not the fact that right. you didn't properly write the, the function to do it. So what you should be trying to test is that within the ecosystem that your services or your Lambda lives in, it works properly, not that in isolation it works properly. So yeah, that's why I'm saying in this new world, your unit tests, the vast majority of them are useless. You don't, don't waste time writing a test to test, you know, with four mocks to test that you wrote in the <laughs> database depending on SQS. Like, I mean, I'm sure that someone will screw it up at some point, but that's way more unlikely than having the wrong permissions, than yeah. having the wrong queue passed in, uh, in CloudFormation or whatever you're using to, to glue together your, your, your services. It's way more likely that your, um, what's the name? the time, the polling time in your SQS queue is too yeah. high or too low. Like right. that's way more likely to happen. Like a visibility timeout issue. Exactly. Yeah. It's way more likely to happen than someone screwing up a promise. Uh, so yeah. write unit tests when they are necessary, but trying to get 100% coverage full of unit tests, it's a waste of time. Yeah, so I must have the same hot take because I haven't written unit tests for years. I'm probably just lazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have a, like I have a library that, you know, like I don't write unit tests there either. I should probably do that. Uh, but like on the serverless side, I totally get it. Like the only time I find myself, and, and I hate the like mocking out AWS resources feels awful. But the only time I do find myself writing unit tests is like, I just need to run this code to make sure I'm like, it, I'm doing the right thing. Like I know what I'm, you know, working through here, uh, but that's pretty rare. So you would say like integration tests, test the thing in AWS to make sure 
you know, you're getting ahead of those sort of permission errors and things like that. Yep. yep. Can I get you to just say like, no, you know, what? I'll just edit out the unit. So you're just saying like, tests are bad. I'm like, that's gonna, that's gonna be on social. Though. Like, boy, say tests no good. Like automated testings for losers. <laughs> I was really honestly hoping you would say something about Web three because my Twitter timeline oh. is it's just it's that's all it is. It's either like for or against Web three. It just it took over like like last forty eight hours. Yeah. I can't really have a hot take on Web3 because I don't know much about it. Uh, but from what I understand, people are trying to build a decentralized network on a decentralized network to replace a decentralized network. And like, <laughs> <laughs> there's it's a problem somewhere there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, I really can't say anything about Web3 without sounding like a super old person. Uh, Exactly. Think, maybe, yeah, maybe it just means that we don't have the necessary knowledge to actually have an opinion. Yeah. Um, and there are just so many businesses to build in Web2 still that, right. okay, if you want to be at the forefront, go Web3, but we still have a lot to do in, in Web2, right? Like, yep. I don't think I know anyone in the real world, like not on Twitter, who knows anything about Web3, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a I very Twitter specific. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like for me, that's where I get I'm sure that everyone else is like getting it. Like if they're in the space, it's from Discord and whatever, like dApps or whatever they're making where they're talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, but for me, yeah, it's very contained to Twitter, which is nice because if I just don't want to read the words web three any given day, I just don't open Twitter. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, that's so much of my life. I think living so you live in London. Have you you grew up in London? Like you've always lived in London? No, actually, I'm from Cameroon uh, in Central Africa. I grew up there till I was 20. I came here for my studies. And yeah, I've been here for the past, what, eight, nine years now? Yeah, okay. And is it like you're in London or do you live like, I don't know anything about London. <laughs> like, are you outside of the, are you in the city, I guess? I No, I don't live in the city. That is too expensive. Uh, I live in what you would call the suburbs. I don't think we call yeah. it the suburbs here. It's like, yeah, it's not London, London, but it's yeah, yeah. You know, train train distance from London. So I live in like a very rural sort of like farmland area in the United States, in the Midwest. Uh, like, I mean, the city that Springfield that I'm closest to is like 100,000 people. But basically nobody like, you know, if I said Web3 on the street, <laughs> <laughs> like it just doesn't even register as like a concept they've heard of but it's interesting uh, stuff that, it's hard not to be sort of like to notice it and to 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 want to kind of learn more yeah i think there is something there um just that i don't know anything about it and like just from looking at it from the outside it feels like just a hype machine like every six months vc twitter is gonna come up with something uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's what i think that's what i'm trying to figure out is where on the sort of hype cycle that's well documented like where are we with web3 specifically or crypto more broadly because i feel like web3 is kind of uh even like a sub set of broader blockchain and crypto you know it's like it kind of means something web3 is like its own concept but i think yeah. like 
I felt like the hype cycle was sort of years ago hitting peak and then we've kind of come down. But now, I don't know, this feels like my Twitter feed. It's all that's in my Twitter feed. So I feel like if I'm on Twitter talking on a space, it doesn't feel out of place to be just talking about Web3 because that's (laughs) that's all you can talk about on Twitter. Uh, My wife's super into like Enneagram. I don't know if you're familiar with like personality tests, Uh, but I'm I'm an Enneagram type nine. So I like everything to be like at peace. I like everybody to be good. And my Twitter is just full of people not good right now. They're all sort of at each other. And I just want them to all be like at Pete. No more sort of uh, uncomfortable <laughs> conflict, yeah. please. Well, I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to get bit better uh, when more people do their research, right? Like yeah. when I will have a few, like a few hours, I will do a bit of research and understand exactly what, what this is about. Um, if it's something that is super interesting, I'm definitely going to encourage people in it. It just happens that right now it's, yeah. as I said, there are too many businesses to build in Web2. So let's do that. Um, and then let's leave, at least for me, I will leave the pioneers, be pioneers in, in Web3. But something else, when you talked about hot takes, um, Ooh, I just another one. remembered one, exactly. Your um, staging environment is useless. Oh, you thank you. I well. really don't want to have one. <laughs> <laughs> you should throw that away as well, uh, because it simply is not a representation of your production environment. If you're doing serverless maybe you can get close but if you you have like if you're at a company which is at least five years old with a lot of code that was written by a lot of people who already left the company mm-hmm. and they were not doing infrastructure as code from day one um yeah like your dev your staging environment or dev environment whatever you want to call it is never gonna look like exactly your production environment and organizations at least the ones that i've spoken with waste so much time and resources trying to keep those two somewhat similar and it gives them the false sense of security that if it's working in staging it's going to be working in prod when that is not true because they are not the same environment um so yeah if you're spending a lot of time keeping a staging environment close to prod i think you should ditch it and I love it. Invest, invest in you know having your logs in production in order right yeah. having like being able to know what's going on in production rather than trying to have a separate environment which is kind of the same but not really where you you do your testing um it's it's a waste of time that's and my do, opinion do you do any sort of testing in production it's something I really want to know more about. So I'm going to ask every guest I have until I get an answer. <laughs> so testing in production, what do we call testing in production? That's that's the main question for me, because if yeah. you're talking... Like just poking around in the UI, like if you're just logging in and just testing it, that's I guess that's testing in production. Yeah, if that's what we're calling testing in production, definitely, and everyone should be doing that. Um, everyone, that's why... Because I wasn't doing it for two weeks, nobody was able to sign up on my app and I didn't know. Everyone should have, if you're running a business or you're in in an engineering team, at least once a week, someone should do the core workflow in the app from zero. 
and note down every bottleneck because every single time you're going to notice that, hey, we can't, like the onboarding is not that good. Right. Or when you click on this button for the first time, it throws an error. The second time it works. But if all you're doing is testing, you know, in dev or in staging, where usually what happens in staging is sales team is sharing staging. Customer support is sharing staging as well. Uh, yep. Whatever other, like the CEO is sharing staging as yep. well because he's in those parties showing it to his VC friends. Your staging environment is not real. It's a, it's a smoke screen that is hiding the problems that are happening in prod. And so, if no yeah. one's testing it, if no one's ever seeing production but your customers, then yeah, you, you have no visibility. Exactly, exactly. Um, what a lot of people consider testing in prod will be you know, doing the chaos engineering and all those super complicated things. I have Stuff that like Netflix, that. they've got time for that. They've got the people. To... <laughs> <laughs> okay, you just mess everything up, like in production. Exactly. Try. I've please. never been in an organization big enough to be doing those kind of experiments. Yeah. Um, stress testing, definitely. I think that's something that when you start to be big, you should be doing. Um, just making sure that if for whatever reason, Kylie Jenner tweets your link. Uh, you can at least keep running uh, before everything goes to shit. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to at least once a week just go through the core the core flow of your app and see where things are going wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. I think like just talking with you, I can't help but think of the different sort of circles on Twitter. And it's so easy when someone says something like someone I follow because they're big into maybe they work at Netflix and they're like, you know, embedded in that world where things are very different. They say something like you should test in production. I read that and go, ah, I guess I should. I respect that person. But like not everybody's doing the same things. That's that's a sort of bold statement. We're not all doing the same things on the Internet. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I guess like it's easy to follow a lot of different types of people and to hear a lot of different advice and sort of think it just generally applies to the things you're doing day to day. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you sh I don't know, like that chaos engineering thing, if you're running, if you're alone running an app with 2000 users. Yeah. Just building infrastructure for that is a waste of your time, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, you you should be focusing on things that your customers actually care about. When you get to I don't know, ten million customers logging into your app every single day, it becomes more important because now you have so many potential points of failure that okay, sure. let's just break everything and see and see what comes out of it. Yeah. So I guess the key is like just having that filter and knowing that you know you know your kind of use case or your situation and, and you can run everything you read through that and just like following the right people like being in the right circles of other indie hackers that are you know building small bootstrap businesses and thinking like they do even if you kind of have a different angle on it you know you're building on aws um yeah yeah um, I can, oh, go ahead one thing in my opinion which is also pretty important is to grow with with your audience right like 
now I'm following and interacting with way more AWS and observability people on the internet. And that's simply because I, I'm not building a bookmarking tool anymore, right? Like when I started, it was a bookmarking tool for myself, just, you know, to save my bookmarks and be able to retrieve them. If I had 10 users, I was happy, right? Yeah. Now I'm actually going for something which is much more bigger. So it's important that in that journey, first of all, the people that, you, at least for me, that I started being active on Twitter with, we grow together, right? Like we are evolving at a very similar pace. And then you also want to aspire to discovering what people that are at a different stage are doing and are thinking, knowing also that that doesn't necessarily apply to you today, yeah. right? Like it's good, at least for me to know that eventually when I get 10 million users, okay, I will start doing Keros engineering. I don't need to know exactly how it works, but if I understand it conceptually, it's good for now. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. And it's, I think, people just getting started in tech. Uh, like, I think that's one of the biggest challenges probably is just knowing, like, there's a lot of opinionated people and and there's a lot of different opinions on Twitter. Being able to sift through that and kind of navigate your way to success, I think that's a, a big challenge. Well, I... Uh, I've got my hot take. I think uh, <laughs> anything else. Take it out else of context. Would, yeah, oh, I'm totally gonna take it out of context. It's gonna be, it's gonna be cut up and extracted into something awesome. It's gonna involve Web three, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so it's been you're so writing, good. Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was saying, if you're writing unit tests in Web three for your staging environment. You are on a million dollar idea. <laughs> yes. I got three. That's right. I got three hot takes from you. Uh, you just melded them all together for me in one little sound bite. Uh, that's awesome. Well, it's been so good, Boris. I think, uh, yeah, I, you've put up with my just kind of trying to figure out what I'm doing here, being on the one of the very first shows. Greatly appreciate it. You're somebody I've admired for a long time on Twitter. Uh, it's great to finally kind of talk face to face. Thanks everyone to you know, on the Twitter space that joined. You know, one thing I found in starting a, an audio show, the hardest thing in the world is to get off of it. I don't know, like, I guess that's <laughs> everyone has like a recorded, like a thing that they just say every single time. I don't have that yet. So everyone that listens to these is going to just kind of listen to me meander at the end and be like, okay, I'm stopping <laughs> it now. I'm I really don't know what to do. Uh, so you guys can all just leave now. Save me the trouble of trying to end this space. Uh, thank you again. Boris, and thanks everyone yeah, thank for joining. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks everyone listening. Um, yeah, catch me on Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. Catch Boris on Twitter. Check out Baseline. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, yeah, think uh, we'll make sure all that stuffs in the show notes as well. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Boris. Cool. Bye. <laughs>